Hey everyone, I'm Josh and I'm the Gatherings Director here at the River Church. And thanks for checking out one of our messages today. We would love to get connected with you and your family. And one easy way to do that is to text River Connect one word to 97,000. Or you can visit our website at theriverchurch.cc to learn more about us and some upcoming events. If you'd like to give to the River Church today, you can text the amount you want to give to 84321, or you can visit our website and click the Give tab at the top of the page. Thanks again for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Matthew chapter number five, let's go there together. And we are continuing our series, uh, looking at Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. And this is here in this passage, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It is the the central teaching of Christianity. So if you're a Christian here, uh, the ideas of of our faith are rooted here in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. If you're not a Christian and you want to understand what Christians are supposed to be like, uh, what Christians are supposed to believe and teach and live by, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 are great passages to uh, understand and to look at. And so let's pick up in verse number 27 in just a moment. But just by way of review, Jesus is teaching here on a mountain somewhere near the Sea of Galilee. We don't know what mountain it is, but Jesus begins to teach and he sits down which I I always love that dynamic because it's interesting to me as a a visual person to see that. Jesus is sitting, the listeners are standing, and from that kind of posture, the people know Jesus is about to say something or teach something that's very important, very authoritative. And so here is what we see in Matthew chapter 5. And I want you to look at verse number 20, just kind of some building blocks here. If you don't have a Bible, as always, I want to encourage you to share with the person next to you. You can download the River Church app on your phone, but I want to encourage you to see God's word for yourself. So Jesus has said, I, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. In verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the Pharisees, the scribes, were viewed as righteous people. They were people that lived a very moral life. Their standard of living, uh, morally at least, was very high. And so for Jesus to say this to the common man, the common people, is very shocking. It's saying to them, listen, unless you're better than those people over there, unless your righteousness, righteousness exceeds the people who are saying that they live by the law, that they live perfectly up to the standard of 613 laws, you are never going to enter heaven. Matter of fact, you're going to experience eternal judgment of God in a place called hell. It would have been a really earth-shattering, it would have been a a thought that would have rattled Jesus' listeners. So Jesus, in verse number 21 to the end of the chapter there, uses this phrase multiple times. Verse 21, he says, you have heard that it was said. So he says, this is what the law says. And then he begins to say, verse 22, but I say to you. So here's what the law says. But then there was an assumed interpretation of that law that the Pharisees, the scribes, had delivered to the people. They had taught to the people. 
And Jesus is going to say, no, they've lowered the standard. I need you to understand the heart of what God is saying. And so last week, we looked at this idea of murder and being angry, the idea of murdering someone really in our heart. This week, we're going to look even deeper at this idea of the heart. Verse number 27. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Honestly, we could just read that passage, pray, and leave. Because it's a bomb that Jesus drops here. It, it, is, it is right to the heart. Jesus has said, you, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. That was part of the Ten Commandments. Jesus said, you, you've heard this said, you've heard this taught. That's, that's a legitimate and true commandment in the Bible. Well, there had begun to be these loopholes within society, these loopholes within culture. One author said it this way. He said, in the ancient world, generally, it was held that married men could have sexual adventures as long as they did not involve a married woman, which would ultimately mean violating the rights of her future husband. A woman, however, was expected to have not such relations. She should be chaste before marriage and faithful after it. So there was this double standard that a married man could go to a prostitute or a married man could have an affair as long as it was not with another married woman. That would then, in that case, be adultery. Jesus steps into a culture like that and says, hey, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus is affirming, fulfilling. He's declaring that is a, a biblical God-ordained truth. And then Jesus kind of reveals the heart of the commandment. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus goes beyond just the simple physical act, if you will, and he goes to the heart of the matter. He steps into the culture and he speaks that. Now, fast forward 2,000 years to here we are in the year 2022, and Jesus says, you shall not commit adultery. And most people are not going to make it, sadly, past that commandment because they're like, well, really? D.A. Carson says, many modern thinkers would affirm the legitimacy of adultery if there is love. I just, I love him. I love her. My wife or my husband, they, they don't uh, love me or we've fallen out of love or our relationship is on the rocks or we're almost divorced. Things like that. Jesus speaks into this and he just throws down and he says, you shall not commit adultery. I want you to hold your spot in Matthew 5. I want you to go back to the first book of the Bible Genesis, Genesis chapter 39. 
Genesis chapter number 39 is a story of a young man named Joseph. We'll pick up at the end of verse number 6. So Genesis 39, 6. It says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. So Joseph is the head servant or slave in his master's house. His master's name is Potiphar. And Potiphar has entrusted everything in his home to this uh, Hebrew slave. Joseph is a handsome young man. And after time, the Bible says that Potiphar's wife began to notice Joseph and began to pursue him sexually. Verse 8, but he refused, said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Notice that Joseph sees it would be sin against Potiphar, but there was, a, there was a higher authority. There was a higher court, if you will. There was a higher opinion that mattered to Joseph, and that was how can I do this great thing and sin against God? How can I do this great wickedness and violate God's holy standard? Verse 10, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. So her seduction here, her trap was, well, let's not have sex. Let's just, if you will, let's just snuggle, right? Let's just lie beside each other. And Joseph saw the trap. He saw the sin for what it was. Now let's go back into the New Testament to the Gospel of John. John chapter number 8. John chapter number 8, verse number 2. Take your time to get there. certainly want you to see it for yourselves. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman. Now, this is the same two groups that Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount. These are the people that were for three years trying to trap Jesus, trying to kill Jesus. They, they wanted to um, uh, discredit Jesus and ultimately that failed. And so they're like, let's, let's just kill this guy. So it says, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. What's fascinating to me about this passage of scripture is the sexism of the Pharisees and the scribes. There's no man present. So we're stepping into a culture here, back to Matthew 5 and our brains. There, there is a double standard. And so here's the woman caught in adultery being brought before Jesus. And, and kind of my subtext of this is like, where's the guy? Like, does he just get let off the hook? 
And they are quite vicious to this woman. It says, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? I want you to see that. They are correctly understanding the law. Because adultery was so destructive to the home, the family, the society, and to a person's own soul. Jesus says, so they say to Jesus, the law is that she should die. Well, what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. We don't know what Jesus is writing. People have guessed all types of things. My favorite guess, and please, this is a guess. We don't know this. My favorite guess is that Jesus was writing the sins of the Pharisees and the scribes in the dirt. We don't know that to be true, but can you imagine? They come to Jesus. Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Jesus bends down, starts writing something in the stand. They're like, oh, what's he writing? Oh, just scribble that out right there. Like, uh, don't read this, right? Of course, it's a guess. But they were testing Jesus. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, and when they had heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him, and Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? He said, She said, No, one Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. Jesus is not affirming adultery. Jesus is giving grace. And he says to this woman in similar fashion that he would say to the woman at the well, go and sin no more. I'm not trying to be rude or salacious or mean. But the reality is, I want you to see this twofold, so hang with me in this passage. There are many people in here that have been devastated by the physical reality in your marriage of adultery. For some of you, you're enduring that in this moment. For some of you, it's in your past. Jesus says to you, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. It's it's how the church ought to behave. It's an acknowledgement of the devastation of sin. But it is a go and sin no more. Now let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. Because we're going to see the stunning reality of what Jesus says here. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, so here is the authoritative words of Christ, that everyone who looks at a woman, so this is taken from the man to a woman perspective, but you could easily transfer it, a woman who looks at a man, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here it is. Jesus says, listen, there's an act. There's a physical act of adultery. But I need you to understand that that already is set in motion and already accomplished in the heart. And it is set in motion and it is accomplished with a lustful intent. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great British preacher, says it this way, it is not only a man's deeds that count, but his desires. Not only must we not commit, we must not even covet. So we have a couple different passages from, from the law from the Ten Commandments in play here. You should not commit adultery. Well, that's there. But also is that you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or any of your neighbor's possessions. You shouldn't covet or lustfully desire something that someone else has. Lust is defined as to set your heart upon, to long for, to covet, to desire. One writer said it is, the look is not casual but persistent. The desire not involuntary or momentary, but cherished. Piper says, lust is sexual desire minus honor and holiness. So what is the lustful intent? It is wandering eyes. It is a wandering heart. It is a wandering imagination. Jesus said, it's done. The sin has been committed. We like to justify. Say things, well, no, you can look, but you just can't touch. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You you shouldn't touch, but you shouldn't look intent. You shouldn't look lustfully because that's the same thing in the eyes of God. Here's why. And this is what we struggle with. God is looking at the heart. He's looking at what's going on in here. And so many times we're able to justify and say, well, I never acted upon that desire. And we think that that rationalizes or justifies or excuses things. Jesus said to look at a woman with lustful intent, the deed is already done You've committed adultery with her in your heart. Here's why. Because it all comes out of the heart. Hold your spot in Matthew 5 and go forward to Matthew 15. This is a passage that we keep going to almost weekly, I think, now. Jesus is debating with the Pharisees, really debating. He's teaching them. They're obsessed with the surface. Jesus is trying to deal with internal issues, heart issues. Verse number 18. Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile the person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So Jesus is saying this is a heart issue. The heart is what is going on. 
Now, I want you to leave there, and I want you to go to Romans chapter number 1. Because the culture in which Jesus was speaking there was a culture of double standards. It was a culture of weird legalism, as we'll see in a moment. But It was a a culture that um, there was a, a facet of it that was dealing harshly with adultery. Fast forward in time to where we are Paul, writing here, really sadly summarizes the Greco-Roman world, and he speaks to the culture in which we live in. Romans chapter 1, I'm just going to read the majority of it, beginning in verse number 18, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Notice the way that we view God, theology, we would say, has a direct impact to behavior. It's it's always that. So there was a rejection of God which releases a person from accountability. Verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. Here it is again. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Do you see the spiral here of moral depravity? There's a rejection of God's authority. There's a rejection of God's existence. And that leads to behavior. That leads to immoral behavior. That leads to godless behavior. That leads to impure hearts, impure desires, dishonorable passions. And now we see in verse number 28, a debased mind. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. There it is. Welcome to America, 2022. It all goes back to this 
rejection, people, individuals, rejection of God and who he is. And so what we are seeing is we are seeing a debased mind where people think something is okay that is not, that is insanity. Though they know God's righteous decree, verse 32, that those who practice such things deserve to die, here it is. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the demand in the world that if you do not approve of someone's behavior completely, you are bigoted, rude, hateful, belligerent, old-fashioned, whatever label you want to put on it. This is the world in which we live in. And this is what I think is really the point that I want to make. This is the world that is infiltrating the church. This is the mindset that is infiltrating God's people. So it's easy for me to get up here and say, look at the world. It's, you know, old preacher saying, it's going to hell in a handbasket. And people are, amen, that's great, pastor. But when we stop, we go, this is the mindset that is infiltrating us. Man, that just, that stops everybody in their tracks. Because Jesus is about a heart change. Jesus is about transforming the inside and then that will have the transformation that will begin to be seen on the outside. So here's what Jesus is warning. If it's in the heart, it's going to come out. If it's in the heart, you've already committed it. You've already violated your conscience. You've already, in many ways, grieved the Holy Spirit. That behavior will come out. And we are being inundated. And we are willfully allowing ourselves as God's people to be inundated willfully by a mass amount of sensual material day in and day out. And it doesn't send off any alarms for people. I remember years ago, the Lord just wrecked my life over some of these things. Just had to steamroll me. Brought me to repentance, and I'm thankful for that. And the Lord, over time, has started to heal my heart and heal my mind and heal my soul to now where I see certain things that were familiar before. I go, oh my goodness, how did I watch that? How was that okay? The problem is my heart was so gross. My heart was so wicked that there was beginning to be a transformation in thoughts and in passions This mindset, all of those things we see in Romans 1, it was invading my soul. My concern for God's people is that those things are happening and we don't even know it because we're not committing the physical act. It's only a mental thing. It's a heart thing. And God, I'm sure he's okay with that. And Jesus says, you've heard it said, You shouldn't commit adultery, right? Don't commit adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But Jesus said, I say to you that if you look at a woman with lustful intent in your heart, you've already done it. It's already done. It's sealed. 
One writer said, sensual sins are preceded by sensual fantasies. So we try to combat sexual sin a few ways. Um, Some, it's the legalistic way. I will set a bunch of rules and do this on my own. I'll put up some major boundaries. There's nothing wrong with having boundaries. But I'll, I'll be able to stay on the straight and narrow if I have this you know, construct of accountability. Uh, there was a group of Pharisees. They're my particular favorite group of Pharisees. They would be walking down the streets. They were called the bruised and battered Pharisees, the bruised Pharisees. And what they would do was if they saw a woman, even at a distance, they would close their eyes. And yet they would continue walking. Now, keep in mind that these are stone streets with steps and inclines and declines and all these different things. So they would get black eyes and they would fall and all of these different things. Well, we laugh at that and say, what an idiot. Like, that's just, you're setting a rule here. Like, I got to close my eyes every time there's a woman even near me. So the more bruises that you had... Apparently, the more dedicated you were to that particular set of rules, right, the more holy that you were. Those are my favorite group of people. They just make me laugh just to think about it. Some people think that they'll put those same types of rules in, and that will transform them. So they have the legalistic method. Some people have the diet method. So I'm just going to read this because it made me laugh. One author said, a lot of us have developed the diet mentality towards lust. We really want to cut back on lust because we know it's not healthy and it makes us feel bad or shameful. But like some rich calorie-laden chocolate dessert, lust is just too tasty to resist completely. Surely God will understand if we break our diet and nibble a little lust now and then. It's like, God, I did good six and a half days this week I had a cheat meal. You're okay with that, right? And so we try to do this little negotiation with God about sexual sin. Uh, Some do the justifying it, right? God doesn't understand my life or my wife or my husband. We'll use phrases like you can shop, but you can't buy. You can look, but you can't touch. It's not the first look that kills you. It's the second Some will say, boys will be boys. I was born this way. We'll use these justifications, these excuses, these things to rationalize sexual sin in our life. Maybe it's everyone else is doing it. It's harmless. It's just entertainment. There's one method for young adults in here I specifically want to address with you. It's called the marriage method. Man, I'm a mess right now, but when I get married, it'll all be okay. And if you hear nothing else for the next little bit, I want you to hear this. No, it will not. This idea that, okay, we're going to, I'm going to look at pornography or I'm going to be promiscuous, or I'm going to do all these different things, but that will not happen when I get married. I will, I, it'll all work itself out. No, it will not. And so we use these different methods and, and other things. 
And what we need is the gospel method. Where we come to Christ, and this is what Matthew chapter 5 says, verse 29. If your right hand, or right eye, excuse, excuse me, causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Now please, before anybody gets any physically crazy ideas, this is hyperbole, and no one gouged their eyes out at this moment, okay? There was, there was a... There was an old, like a first, second century Christian who took this so seriously, he castrated himself. That guy always scares me. I meet him in heaven, and I have many questions for him. Verse 29, sorry, that was really dark, and you don't know whether to laugh or groan or what. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Later on in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus will add your foot. I'll just read it just to round out the metaphor there. In verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Jesus is not endorsing mutilating your body. Jesus is talking about surrender. Surrender. An honest, transparent repentance before God and before people. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. You can just jot these down in your notes. I'll give you a few verses. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, and I want you to see this last phrase, which is idolatry. It's idolatry. What sexual sin is, is looking to something or someone else to give you what only God can give you. So we have these idols, these idols that we go to and we worship. It might be at a computer, it might be on our phone, it might be a strip club, it might be a person, it might be a place that we want to go because we want to see someone, because we want our eyes to be able to commit a sin that no one else will know about. And we'll rationalize and say, okay, I'm just, it's just my eyes. I didn't actually do anything. I didn't touch. I didn't act out. Or I'm only hurting myself. Romans 13 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Galatians 5.16 says, but I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's interesting that Jesus there in Matthew chapter 5 uses this word in verse 29, the right eye, and in verse number 30, the right hand. Those were considered to be, as one commentator said, a person's best and most precious faculties. So what's the call here? Kill it. 
we are to drastically and dramatically, with courage, without hesitation, deal with sin. But this is where the rubber meets the road. And this is, I'm just going to be real blunt with you. This drives me crazy. Because we don't want to do it. Jesus said it's better to cut off your right hand. It's better to pluck out your eye. Than it's better to lose those members than for your whole body to go into hell. What is sexual sin? It's an idol. Meaning our devotion, our allegiance, our worship is brought to that in the form of money, in the form of time, in the form of emotions, in the form of identity, in the form of I need satisfaction, I'm lonely, I don't feel good, I'm depressed, I'm happy, I earned this, I served God, it'll be okay for me to do this. And we rationalize and we justify with all of those different things. Jesus says, I'm not your God. This is your God. And unless you are radically going to repent of that sin, you will end up in hell. The part that drives me nuts is Christians will not do this. I think it's Kent Hughes who says, he uses this phrase and I loved it. We refuse to be cultural amputees. We won't do it because we don't want to look weird to the guys at the shop. We don't want to look weird to the guys on the job site. We don't want to look strange to guys on our sports teams. We don't want to be that weird family. I mean, ask most people, where do you fit morally in the world? Are you super extreme? Are you, are you super like radical over here? Are you super liberal? Nah, I'm somewhere in the middle. Everybody thinks they're somewhere in the middle. I'm just kind of here in the middle. I, and those people are a little crazy, but those people, I don't really want to be over there with them. And so what we try to do is we try to walk this tightrope that we're in the middle. You're not. God has called us to radical, sacrificial obedience to him. And guess what? You're going to look weird. You're going to look strange. That's why Jesus began the passage with, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You're not the salt of the earth, the light of the world, standing in the middle going, well, I'll compromise with those people and I'll compromise with these people. And so sometimes God calls us to be in our high schools, in our college campuses, in our workplaces, cultural amputees. Hey, you coming out with us? No, I can't do that. What's the problem? Yeah, I, I, I can't go there. Well, what's the deal? Sometimes you just got to come down to, yeah, man, there's that waitress there and I can't go there because my eyes struggle with her. Oh, man, what's wrong with that? Yeah, I can't do that, man. I want to honor my wife. I want to honor the Lord. We don't want to say those things. Hey, did you see the newest show? No, I can't watch that crap. That doesn't honor the Lord. Really? You don't watch that stuff? No. But the problem is we become so desensitized from stuff, we don't even think in those terms. So that's what Jesus is throwing down with, with the salt of the earth. Verse 13, if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's pointless, it's worthless. Throw it out, it's become so diluted. 
And one of the areas that God's people have become so deluded is in the area of sexual sin. Well, I, don't, I didn't commit physical adultery, but in our hearts, the deed is done. And we gotta just, we gotta stop seeing this low standard and we gotta start seeing God's high and holy standards and go, oh man, that's, that's where I wanna be. God, I can't be that unless you empower me through the Holy Spirit to live that way because my heart is jacked and I need you. But we don't wanna do that. We don't wanna look weird. I'll just keep going. I don't know how some of you guys go the places you go. I'm talking to men here. Because sometimes I think, is he just like blind? Is, Is he like asexual? Like, I don't know. And I realized, no. That's that is just compromised. And what ticks me off is I've seen it in my own life. And I go, man, how did I compromise so the, the, the witness, the salt and light that God has called me to be so deeply? It's because we don't want to be cultural amputees. We like our eyes. We like our hand. We like our foot. We like our friends. We like our vacations. We like the norm. We don't want to be over there with the extreme people. We don't want to be on that extreme, so we feel like we're going to be right in the middle. And Jesus just says, you are on your way to hell. You can see why after preaching this, the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. Because some of you are real upset at me right now, too. So what is the call of God? The call of God is to repent. The call of God is to clean house. The call of God is to deal with that eye or that hand or that foot or that thing that is constantly derailing us. It's to be honest about that. It's to say, I can't go to that gym anymore. I can't do it. I can't go to that restaurant. I can't go to that place my, my driving patterns, my traffic, I got to get a new place to go get coffee because I can't do it because every morning I like flirting with that girl. Some of you are like, well, it's too hard to find a new place to get a coffee. Are you kidding me? Right? Oh, I don't want to find a new gym. There are no other gyms. Are you kidding me? Seriously? But we will not repent because we love our idols. We love it. So let's talk about what repentance means. Hold your spot in Matthew. Go to the left. Let's go to Job. Job chapter 31. Job is the man. So here's what repentance looks like. Repentance is confessing our sins and repentance is running. Now we'll get to those in a moment, but I just love what Job says here in Job chapter 31. Take your time to find it. It's right before Psalms. 
Job chapter 31, Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Like I have talked to my eyes and I've said, eyes, we are not looking over there. And when that woman comes here, we're not going to turn into the Pharisees and close our eyes and stumble around like a blind man. I have a phrase with my wife. I'm going to burn a hole in her eyes. One of the things my wife has told me is that women know when you're not looking them in the face. Job says, I've made a covenant. I've made an agreement before God with my eyes that we are not looking in the wrong places. Verse 7, same chapter. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes and if any spot has struck, uh, stuck to my hands. You see that? He's going to talk about his way, his heart, his eyes, his hands. Verse 8. Then let me sow and another eat, and let what grows for me be rooted out. And if my heart has been enticed toward a woman, and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, let my wife grind for another, and let others bow down uh, on her. Like, this is serious. It all comes back to verse 1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. So this is repentance. It is first of all confessing. You just jot these down in your notes. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes will obtain mercy. Galatians 6.2, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. James 5.16 Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So what does this look like? This first looks like confession to God, and then this is confession to the person that you have sinned against. If you're married, this is going to your wife and say, I have sinned against you in my heart and in my mind. Here it is. It's confessing to someone and saying, I need your help, I need your accountability because I'm not acting out on these things, but my mind is messed up. Because here's the warning. What is in your heart and in your mind, you will eventually act out on. So we clean house. We make a covenant with our eyes. We confess our sins and then we run. We run the other way. Two passages, really important. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says, flee from sexual immorality. 2 Timothy 2, 22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. If I could just be very specific to young men and young women in here, run away. While the rest of your friends and the rest of the world is running in the direction of self-destruction. You need to understand that your middle school buddies who are looking at pornography are sabotaging their whole life right now in ways that if there weren't women in here, I would tell you to your face. High school guys, you, your friend, you are sabotaging your whole life right now because you think pornography is harmless. We have an epidemic in our society 
we, we, have, we have pumped so much filth into our world that we're seeing the ramifications of it. People are like, ah, it's terrible. All these, these children are being molested left and right. This is awful. How did this happen? It happened because we, we have just pumped so much filth and pornography and nastiness into the world. That's where it goes, folks. If you're a young man in here dabbling in pornography at 13, 14, 15 years old, I just want to say this to you. You're on, your road to, you're on the road to being a pedophile. Because you will forever lock in your brain, I have to have a girl that is 14, 15, because that's what you're being imprinted by right now. And you need to understand that that does not go away when you're a grown man. Welcome to truth. Grown men, you are no different. You are not exempt. And there's this imprinting that is happening in your brain and there are these things that are happening physiologically in you that are forming and shaping you and will lead you to absolute utter destruction. And you'll say, I don't know how I got here. So stop. Right now, confess and then run. Whatever is causing you to stumble, pluck out that eye Chop off that hand, cut off that foot. Husbands, you need to have conversations with your wives. Wives, you need to have conversations with your husbands. Parents, you need to have conversations with your daughters and your sons about this reality. If you're not, you are abysmally failing. Because that Romans 1 mindset is infiltrating the church. And we are not fighting it to the death. Let's go back to Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There was a king named David in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 11. David went out for a walk on his balcony one day And he saw a woman bathing. And he lusted after her. And he said to a servant, hey, who is that woman? And the servant very sheepishly said, well, that's that's Bathsheba. She's married. She's married to one of your soldiers. Like, yeah. And David just steamrolls through that and says, bring her to me. David commits adultery. One writer I read years ago, this is what he said, and what did it cost him? The near loss of his throne, the sexual misbehavior of his children, the rape of his daughter, the death of an infant son, 
and eventually the deaths of two of his older sons. The price was extremely high for David. And it began in the heart. So what does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't say try harder. Jesus doesn't say go on the diet method. Jesus doesn't say go on the justification method. Jesus says just bring the brokenness to me. Repent. So confess that sin and run from it. Run from it. And as we run to Christ, one of the most hopeful passages in all of the Bible for me that has been a real encouragement to my life in struggle with sexual sin is Jesus saying that he will cleanse us with the washing of the water of the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. When we bring all of our dirtiness to God, mind, hands, feet, God, these are the places I've gone, these are the things that I've done, these are the things that I've seen. We come to God and through the power of the Holy Spirit, the word of God, Jesus begins a cleansing of our soul. Now, it's hard for me, I'm sure, as we've talked over the last 40, 50 minutes. It's hard for me to not address this subject just from a man's standpoint because I'm a guy and I understand sexual sin from a man's perspective. But the word of God is speaking to both men and women. So maybe you feel dirty because of of a variety of different things. I don't know what those things are. The beauty is you can come to Christ. And Christ will wash you and cleanse you. He will forgive you. He will renew you. Like this is what Jesus does. But we cannot talk about the good news of Jesus without talking about the bad news first, the seriousness of sin the decimation that it causes. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you are experiencing it right now. And this is maybe my frustration with myself, and I'll just kind of end here. Maybe this is a poor place to end. Every time we deal with sexual sin in the Bible, this scripture brings us there. It's a, it's a subject that's very passionate for me because I know God's healing, freeing power. I'm thankful for that. And so I will, let's just be honest, I'll yell at you for an hour about it. And you'll all sit there quietly, trying not to move, trying not to breathe. I know how it is. I'm sorry. And then here's the frustration. And then some of you will do nothing. Nothing. 
if your phone is the problem, kill the phone. If internet at your house is the problem, kill it today. You say, wow, that'd be super hard to function a life without it. Yeah, for sure. But we won't pluck out the eye. We won't cut off the hand. We won't cut off the foot because we don't really, really, really want to deal with the idol. And my prayer for you is that some of you will today. Some of you will get crazy today. Like, I don't care what my friends and family think. We're done going there, doing this, watching it. We're done doing that. They're like, what, what happened? Man, we just got convicted by the Lord. We, we can't be a part of that nonsense. That, that's, that's sin. Man, now we're going to start to be salt and light. Let's pray together.